and welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigrith. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. I had the privilege some years ago of traveling to Nairobi, Kenya, to work in a place called the Mathari Valley. The church I was a part of, and still am a part of, partners with an organization there. And we got a chance to explore and to help and to do all those things that you do on a quote-unquote mission trip. And while I was there, I got to see things that challenged my Western whiteness, uh, things that challenged the way I see the world. But more than that, I got to see just how many children are affected by poverty, by injustice, by personal and systemic evil in the world. And it is an overwhelming feeling. We just went through this election in the United States. If you're listening from outside the U.S., um, you probably watched and saw uh, what's still going on. And sometimes it can feel overwhelming to see the challenges that go into just the democratic process. But when you're faced with a child whose toys are the trash that our kids throw away, and they are in complete joy about it, about a garbage bag or a beat-up ball that's made out of tape and refuse that they found along the way. It changes the way you see things. But there is a commonality that's going on throughout the world, and that is the vulnerability of women and girls. It's true in our country, and it's especially true in Africa, in places where law enforcement doesn't believe women. Imagine that. They believe they're hysterical or they brought their own sexual abuse on themselves. Imagine that. And so there are some commonalities between what we would say is our Western civilization and other countries where it's apparently less civilized. And that's why I'm so grateful for our guest today, Nicole Lim. Nicole Lim's commitment, and you'll hear this in the conversation, is that all of our girls should be free. And that commitment caused her to start an organization called Freely and Hope that is working towards rehabilitating and restoring and renewing girls who have been sexually abused, oppressed, uh, trained for trafficking, impregnated by rape, and then outcast by their community. And this isn't just a conversation about her or about her book, Liberation is Here. This is a conversation about what it takes to set people in situations like this free. And typically, I save this note for the end, but I would encourage you, after you've listened to this episode, to go into the show notes and check out the links that have been provided, ways that you can get deeper into her book, Liberation is Here, and also some ways that you can get involved with the organization Freely and Hope. So listen to the episode and then go check out those links and get involved with what Nicole is doing around the world. And so let me get out of the way so we can have this conversation with justice worker, filmmaker, documentarian, Nicole Lim. Nicole, it's a blessing. Uh, I just finished your book, yesterday. And so it's a blessing to have this conversation so soon after that. Thank you for taking time to talk with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. There's so much to get into, but 
I think the grounding question that all these conversations have is around wisdom. And you're, everyone that I talk to about this has a different way, a different perspective uh, that they use. So I'd love to just start by asking you, if you were going to define the word wisdom, where would you begin? Where does that start for you? Hmm. I think how wisdom has shaped and evolved in my life is recognizing that the more I know, the less I know and being okay with that and growing and learning in the process of recognizing all the things I don't know. Is there a, is there a mystery element to that too? There's, there are some things that just feel like they're beyond reach. Yeah, absolutely. And I think coming from a very, um, very staunch faith tradition that really values the cognitive. <laughs> there's there's this desire to understand all that we can and every little thing in the Bible and every little detail about God and God's working in our lives. And the more that I've lived in the world outside of America, <laughs> um, the more that I've heard stories that are beyond mine, um, the more I realize how much I don't know. And that is the beautiful mystery of also not knowing. And I think there's some wisdom in being okay with not knowing based on, you know, your experience is not going to be someone else's experience. And that's also okay, which is why there's an opportunity to learn from it. Is there a, is there a, a set of distinctives for you coming from an Asian evangelical background? Is there something unique that you feel like you also bring to, because a lot of my listeners have that same experience of growing up in a fairly conservative background. Is there something unique that comes from being an Asian American evangelical that you, you feel like you brought to that as well? To the, to my understanding of wisdom? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm, that's a good question. I think what uniqueness I might bring, especially for my family tradition, is recognizing the wisdom of the elders and the ancestors and those who came before you. Um, we are very um, respectful of the lineage from whence we came. Mm. And I think that lineage is what actually carries us into what we do today and to negate that and to neglect it and to forget it, we would lose ourselves. And so I feel like that's the difference between a purely um, American perspective where independence, right, is the goal and being detached from all um, things that might bind you to um, whatever construct it is. Um, I think for Asian American context, it's the value of community and family and the elders that have raised you that actually build you into who you are today, that equips you for the mission that you have ahead. And so you cannot do what you do today without that wisdom of your elders. I do love that. I, I, I love learning from the generations that have come before and having that be part of the expectations. Do you notice anything in you as far as your own spiritual formation that is that you can point to and say that that was formed by the people that came before me? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's the perseverance and tenacity of maintaining faith throughout despair. 
And I've learned a lot about faith and my faith was formed through my grandfather's experience. And I write a lot about it in the book because it was so much beyond my own experience being living and growing up in um, America as a third generation Chinese. Um, he fled communism and war and poverty and famine. And yet faith was his constant that kept the family together actually to this day. Um, all of his siblings were able to immigrate to the States and they've, um, for, for ever since they've been here, every single week we'll have a gathering of prayer, <laughs> even into their very, very old age. And that tenacity and perseverance through faith, through difficult times is um, also what has reminded me in my work of difficulty to remain, um, to remain true to what you know is, um, to what you know is there based on your experience. And I, and I know that for my grandfather, that's the case where um, he, could, he could not falter from his faith because of his experiences. And because faith kept him alive in under communist rule, that is the only reason why he's able to live and breathe today. So I think watching his faith journey in that way and being so consistent in how he lives out his faith, even now as he's 92, um, is what is what I aspire as well. And just in terms of that um, consistency. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I have to ask this, how do you see, what does that look like for you in the midst of a pandemic? We'll get to your book because your, your book has a lot of international <laughs> impact. Uh, what does this look like, this perseverance look like for you in the midst of a time when uh, a lot of us are having to augment everything. I mean, like we were joking earlier, yeah. I'm in the back of my car recording this podcast, yeah. not because I want to, but because dynamics with the pandemic have, have put us here. How is, how is that perseverance playing out for you in the midst of a global crisis like this? Yeah, it's been rough as it is for everyone, you know, and the mental and emotional exhaustion that comes with this pandemic because of the fear and anger and anxiety around it and sense of loss um, is real. Even to be honest, this morning, I was like, I'm so exhausted. I do not want to get up today. And that ebb and flow of both like, oh, I love the pandemic because I can just like stay still and do what I want versus like today I'm so exhausted from all of the emotional, political <laughs> stress that it's, it is difficult to live and breathe into a new day. And so what has kept me grounded during this pandemic is the rhythms mm -hmm. of, of meditation and of sitting still and just sitting in the sun, like with no agenda and just being, I think those are the rhythms of a faith that have kept me grounded and um, not going crazy yet, at least. Yeah. <laughs> So there are two aspects of your life that come together in the book. I mean, there are more than that, but there are two primary ones. There is the, this deep longing that you have to make film and work with the visual medium. Like, I wish people could see you have probably the classiest Zoom setup in history. 
with the Thanks. pictures behind you and the lighting. It's like it's such a studio look, which is fantastic. Um, so there's the there's the filmmaker documentarian side, and then there is this this engagement with stories that is goes beyond the camera. Um, it goes deeper than that. When did you realize that these two things were converging in a way that was unique mm-hmm. and and formed some sort of vocational moment for you? Yeah, convergence is the word for sure. When I was um, a documentary filmmaker, I was working for international agencies all around the world, going in and out of houses, in and out of country, staying for just days or even hours or sometimes minutes. And I would be... Um, I would be pressured to to gather as much footage and pictures and stories as much as I could within the limited time. And the expectation was always that when I place a camera in front of you, the obligation is that you must tell me your story because this organization helped you and I'm working for the organization. So therefore the obligation is that tell me, you know, you have to tell me your story. And it wasn't always met with joy, (laughs) I will say, but sometimes it was because people were grateful. Um, but other times it was not. And regardless of how the story went, I had to leave. And that was always the hardest part where I felt like I had coaxed them to open up part of themselves to me, but then I would leave and um, often never see them again. And that was really difficult and really draining for me as a photographer. And so when I started um, hearing more stories of issues of sexual violence and learning that issues of sexual violence were directly related to lack of access to education, that's when I started being pulled and drawn into a story beyond just capturing it, converting it for the Western donor mindset and giving it then to the, um, the client that I was working for. It became an invitation into the actual story of helping these the girls that I was hearing, um, helping them actually achieve these dreams that they were sharing with me. And what I realized is that going in and out of homes, for me at least in my position, was not sustainable, was not transformative, was, I don't even know if it was impactful. Um, and yet I knew that there was some value to the longer journey and the longer relationship and the longer uh, trajectory of which we wanted, or I wanted, and they wanted to see in, in their lives. And so, when I started developing closer relationships with some of the girls that I was capturing on film and some off film as well, that's when I felt that their dreams were inviting me into a bigger dream than mine. My initial dream was uh, gather as much international footage as possible, create beautiful work and submit it to National Geographic, everyone's dream, and uh, apply there and work for Nat Geo and then you'll be famous and, and you'll have fun traveling around the world. And now when I think about that dream, I'm like, oh my God, I would be so miserable because I would be doing the same thing, going in and out of homes, in and out of cultures, in and out of places, and not actually spending time to realize what are the stories that are being told and how can I support and uplift and amplify those dreams that that the people want to actually achieve. And so that's when I switched careers to start an organization to support survivors of sexual violence because I felt like they were inviting me into a larger story beyond documentation and into actually implementing those dreams. And so that's what really was um, the transformation for me. 
in the book, you you begin to engage some of these stories in Africa, primarily, and you said something early on that I thought was interesting, and I, I feel like it's important for people to hear, is that the stories were welcoming you in, but you initially resisted that pull. Talk talk about that a little bit. What was the what was the what was it in you that was causing you to resist being drawn in by their stories? Yeah, so culturally in my family system, and even as an Asian American, um, we don't express emotion very much. And as a child, I was very explosive, uh, especially in terms of my emotion of anger. That was the the emotion that was always there and always at the forefront, but it was always suppressed where if I had any experience of anger or even experience of like an abundance of joy, it, it felt like it was suppressed by aunties who would say, that's not ladylike, girls don't do that, you know? And so growing up with this notion of, I can't be the fullest expression of who I am and all my emotional energy, um, delving into the stories of suffering requires emotional connection. If you connect with someone's story and you simply hear it to hear it, but there's no emotional connection, then there's no empathy. Then it becomes sympathy. And that's when it becomes damaging and not empowering. And so the, the challenge for me was to actually learn again, to tap into those emotions of anger toward the injustice that they had experienced of rape and incest and violence. And to also tap into the emotions of love, where in finding that where there is suffering, there's an, there is an invitation as well to learn to love through the empathy, through the provision, through the support, through um, giving of yourselves to someone else's story so that you might be uplifted in love together. So that was the huge learning curve for me in learning what it looked like to love in that way. I think all the other ways, especially in, in Asian American culture, the way that you love is through provision only. You have a roof over your head and food on your table, therefore I love you, but we will never say it. And, um, you know, the way that we will express love would be put a jacket on, it's cold. Eat some more rice, you, you, otherwise you're going to starve and wilt away. So it's very kind of punitive. <laughs> um, but that is how um, Asian elders will express love. And, and that doesn't always work in context of trauma. And it's not easily translated as well in, in, in African context or in the context of trauma and in context of stories for people who have experienced deep suffering and lack of emotional support. And so tapping into this emotional side for me uh, was the learning curve. And that is actually what uh, those relationships of learning how to love is what liberated me in the process. And so that's what my book is an attempt <laughs> to actually share, you know, the ways in which I've been liberated through love with, in context of survivors of sexual violence. Yeah. I'm the father of a teenage daughter. So uh, my awareness is becoming heightened to the reckoning we need to do as, as human beings, but definitely in America and and in other places throughout the world with the systemic misogyny and damage that's been done yeah. to girls and women. And your stories highlight, it highlights the individual and the personal experience. But behind that, there is this, 
you know, this sort of unspoken structure, and you mentioned it's not that you don't mention it, but it's constantly there that there is both a personal experience and then there's this systemic experience. And even you talk about a little bit in a funny way where you talk about uh, humility and humiliation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and, And it's, it's, you have a sort of an ironic twist with those two words, but there's a lot there's a lot of similarity and parallel between your experience as an Asian American woman and the experience of girls in Africa, namely from a place of status and what what you can and cannot do. You know, you mentioned that's not mm-hmm. ladylike. Was it difficult when you started seeing how deeply paralleled your story was with at least the the general story of the girls that you highlight in the book? Yeah, that was another um, vocational turning point for me as well, where I recognized that the stories that they were sharing with me, upbringing, culture, family systems was not completely foreign to my experience or, or those within my community. But somehow I was lucky, right, where my grandparents on both sides did immigrate to the states where we were able to get out of the ghetto where both of my parents are college educated, where both of my parents were able to find jobs without racial discrimination, like so many things. And realizing that the stories that I was hearing on the field in Kenya and Zambia could have easily been mine. That was the responsibility then that was placed back on me where God was really asking me, what are you gonna do about these things that you're seeing? And what are you going to, how are, how are you going to respond to the injustice of the world? Because there's a sense of responsibility that you have because you got lucky. <laughs> and, and obviously it's like provision and favor and all of those things, but it's also what makes me any luckier than someone else. The, the world is very unfair, right? And I think it, it calls us to, in our privilege, to respond accordingly by doing what we can with what we have and allowing our common humanity to unite us together more than it tears us apart. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the um, disparity that we're seeing in the States um, with people in power and privilege and authority versus people from lower socioeconomic status, where there, there is a huge divide and a huge gap, and there's no reckoning of the stories beneath them. And when that happens, you begin to other those people where the other, those people, right? We label them as as the poor or the prostitutes or the people with no jobs because they didn't get a job, not realizing there's a larger structure that is keeping them there. But we would never know what those structures are unless we actually go there to hear those stories and to find what is then on my responsibility in my privilege, power, and authority to um, change it? Because their freedom is tied to your freedom in common humanity. And I think that's what we've been missing all this time is the recognition of we're only as human as the other person is. But if we cannot see their humanity and we continue to keep them locked up in prison for crimes they didn't commit or to keep them at border holding cells and remove their children from them. If we deem Africans as people that are complicit to their own poverty and only give them food, but not resources and education, then 
it's it's insufficient and it's actually more harmful than than helpful Throughout Nicole's book, Liberation is Here, in between the stories, she has these poetic breaks, and I wanted to share one of those with you at this point in our conversation. She says, I have been there before, in battle, in tension, in war. I know far too well that this work of justice requires sacrifice in blood, in sweat, in tears. My wounds are still exposed. And when I see my children follow closely behind, I am proud. But at the same time, I desperately want to tell them, come, but don't. For their skin tone, their accent, their gender places a target on their backs. And at the same time, I know far too well that their backs were built to uphold to uphold justice for the multitudes of children who look just like them. Before I can turn around to speak, I see them running beside me and pushing back the darkness before me. The whole time I was reading your book, uh, the refrain from the Lord's Prayer where Jesus says, Our Father, and that, that has become such a repeated mm. and maybe um maybe it feels a little like we just trot that out at the right point in the service but that the depth of that word hour if that's if that's mm. legit then we're it's all of us in the same family and so in your family what happens to your brother or your sister affects you and trying so desperately to return to that to a to a feeling of hour again and especially mm. when there's a level of intimacy you express in the book, a level of intimacy you have with the girls that you, the stories of the girls that you talk about. Specifically, they they call you mom. There's this there's this depth there. How how does that sit with you to have that depth of intimacy with someone, and not only with their story, but they there's a there's a trust and a leaning they have for you. Yeah, when the girls started calling calling me mom, it definitely overwhelmed me with both honor and responsibility. Um, I am not a biological parent, but I believe that parenting is the most important job that you will ever have. And somehow I became a parent to a lot of the girls and it's like, oh my God, this is the most important job that I will ever have, right? Um, And what that did to me um, was to recognize, I guess, yeah, that sense of kind of power, privilege, and authority, right? Because obviously your parents do have power, privilege, and authority over you, um, especially in terms of like the resources that they can provide for you and the wisdom that they can give to you and the support and the advice and encouragement. All of those things hold, hold such power over children. And for a lot of the girls who did not have that emotional support system from their parents, just simply because their parents didn't know how, um, that was a huge reckoning for me in recognizing the power of my words 
and how my words can either harm or heal. Mm. And there are moments in my book that I talk about my massive failures in my work of um, not recognizing the power that I held in um, saying things out of anger in acting out of anger, a lot of things I do out of anger, um, in, in, in causing great harm because I was angry over the injustice of what was happening. Not necessarily that I was angry at them, but angry at the state of the world that was causing trauma and causing suffering and causing self-harm and causing girls to go back into prostitution or to go back into the situations that they were in before. And so all of those things that are like so complex and coupled with trauma really required me to kind of step back and to recognize, okay, what is this role of, of a parent? And how do I do that? Um, knowing one, I am not their biological parent. So therefore there still is responsibility for their parent to have in their life, but also with the, um, with the 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 difference of upbringing and the difference of education levels as well and the difference of understanding of the problems that there a lot of our girls in trauma are rooted in especially since i hold a lot of stories that their parents don't even know mm. what is my role to parent that child or that young adult now um in holding these stories that their re, their their biological parents do not know how do i parent with that knowledge with that, with with a um, level of care, understanding, concern, empathy, um, even a healthy challenging, to really support their movement forward, who I believe that they could be. It's a very difficult balance, I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, but with a lot of my girls now, they're a lot older. They're in their early twenties, so they're able to tell me, and they'll be like. <laughs> Mom, that's not nice. <laughs> that's not appropriate. Uh, I don't need your help right now. Okay, thank you for telling me, you know. So this is this is when you know as a parent that you did a good job when your children start telling you how to parent. Yes. See, the biological side aside, you're experiencing everything that's that's native to parenting. You you're getting you're getting the whole nine yards there. So <laughs> when it I was just blown away and 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 humbled and and crushed by the stories in the book. Um, we talked earlier, you and I, I, about I have some experience with some of the areas of Africa that you're talking about, and mm-hmm. I I was visualizing people. I was visualizing some of the the girls that I had met through the school that we sponsor, the organization that we work with. And I could, and I know it's not the same person, but I could just see them as you were talking about uh, some of the girls in the story. And and it was just heartbreaking, but also sort of, it, it was stirring to know that you and your organization were were taking steps forward to help girls who step out of out of sex trafficking, out of sexual abuse, out of sexual trauma. And it seems like there's a, as I was reading the stories, it seemed like there was a predictable pattern that happened for almost every girl. There was a, they were either tricked or ambushed physically. They were raped. They typically became pregnant and then were ostracized both and uh, socially, culturally, and religiously. Is that as mm-hmm. common as it seems, or were that was that just the commonality between the three stories that you told? Yeah, it is definitely the commonality. 
Um, another factor would be poverty, mm. where with poverty, there are no options and there's no opportunities. There's no education as well. And so a lot of girls also go into early marriage, whether, whether willingly or unwillingly, just because they don't know that there's another pathway for them. And that's what breaks me is that they don't know that they can refuse to get married early, that they could refuse to go into prostitution, that they could refuse to be in a situation of domestic violence, but they don't know. And because of poverty, there are no other options. And so that's why the gift of education is so crucial to create that sense of awareness of, yes, as a girl child, you can pursue whatever dream that you want to pursue. And then as an organization, we provide the holding for that in a system that doesn't encourage it. Right. And so that's why it really depends on, you know, kind of like what I said for my own story, my upbringing, my ancestry, my family situation that allowed me to be the woman that I am today. Um, that held me and emboldened me and allowed me to do certain things that I felt like I was called to do. But not everyone is lucky with those family systems or cultural systems or um, religious systems. And so as an organization, we try to provide that sense of holding so that as they realize what their dream is, funding everything around it and then uplifting them through that process is imperative. Otherwise, the, the larger system uh, will, will overwhelm it. If you can, I, I want people to read the book, but I'd love for them to hear this story uh, the one story that, for whatever reason, really stuck with me was the story of Mubanga. I want to make sure I mm -hmm. pronounce her name correctly. Can mm -hmm. you give people a snapshot of her journey and how you connected with her? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so Mubanga's story was not a, um, was not one of those stories that they were pressured or expected to tell me their story. And that's what was different about her. Mm. Um, I was actually in Zambia for a wedding and I was shooting the friend, my friend's wedding. Um, so that was my job just as a friend and just having fun doing that. And Mubanga was um, at the wedding and we connected not through the, um, not through the camera, but just by being together for the, all the wedding festivities by going to the store, going to get her hair done, doing all these things to prepare for the wedding, that she started to open up and um, tell me her story. And the reason why she told me her story too was because she expected me to leave. Being a foreigner, she didn't expect me to stay or to come back. And so somehow she felt safe that if I tell this American who will never come back, the story will be safe because she cannot spread it to in rumors to other people that might know me. And so she told me, her story where she, when she was 13 years old, she um, was attacked by several men on her way to school and one man raped her. And as they attempted to gang rape her, she was able to run away. And the trauma from that um, made her almost commit suicide. And so she even went as far as swallowing malaria pills and cutting her wrist. And as time moved on, the trauma, it doesn't ever go away. And, and it's really difficult for me to say that because I wish it could. Uh, it just manifests in different ways. And so as she grew older, it would continue to manifest in other ways. Um, and because of the proximity of where she lived in the informal settlement, um, 
one day when she was on her way to the bathroom, she was raped again. And then there was another incident that she was at a friend's house and she was drug raped. And so in being in close proximity to a system that doesn't value your body and um, around around people who also don't see a bigger vision for you, you know, just kind of living as the status quo and letting patriarchy reign supreme, um, who's also justice system is not calling out the perpetrators um, and allowing that process to happen speedily and efficiently. Um, it takes a toll on, on the body. And so Mubanga continued to live in fear and anxiety and that manifested into self-harm. And we see that a lot, whether it be cutting, whether it be choosing bad decisions, whether it be drug or alcohol abuse. And that's why we have to look at the layers beneath the reactions and the layers beneath the trauma. What is there that we can try to uproot and try to heal? And so for Mubanga, as she grew in her education and she started to share her story publicly and, and finding other girls resonate with her story, that connection, that synergy, that shared empathy is what also allowed her to find healing for herself as much as she wanted to find healing for the girls that, that were hearing her story. And so that reciprocity is what I've learned is what that other step is for healing is allowing uh, survivors to have shared space that is safe and that is led by them so that they can talk about the things that really matter to them and they can really delve into the difficulties of being a survivor and experiencing trauma and then giving advice and encouragement for the other girl. For Mubanga, her, her dream is that she would somehow be in a position of power where no girl will have to suffer the way she did. Mm -hmm. And everything that she does, even today, is so that other little girls, especially her baby sister, will never suffer the way that she did. And so now she's um, attempting to study public policy so that she can make um, decisions in that realm and, and make stronger policies that protect girls and women in the justice system. So what, what um, I've really learned in Mubanga's story is that it's not, it's not a linear journey toward healing. <laughs> it is an ebb and flow that requires love, consistency, empathy, care, and concern. And the love is what will transform. And um, yeah, 10 years later, we're still here. <laughs> and she even says, she even said to you, she was talking about making dolls out of mud. And she said, even, mm. even the beautiful things can break. And I just, I, uh, there is something to that. And to hear someone who has experienced that much trauma have the gravity to say that. Mm. And it's not a linear journey. And, and I think when people see the title to the book, Liberation is Here, you know, they may think, well, after I finish reading this, there will be this sort of like final feeling like, and this is what liberation is, mm. but that it's this nonlinear thing. And, and I would even suggest that that's, that's how you experienced it because there was a point in the, in the story where the work broke you in a way, mm. uh, not just in an emotional, spiritual way, but in a physical way. Talk about how that, mm -hmm. how that came about for you. 
Yeah. So I was 24 at the time. I had been doing this work for three, almost four years. And was just hearing story after story of trauma upon trauma that affected the people that I love the most. And it was soon after one of Mubanga's um, second rape incidences happened. I also learned that another girl, while she was in our program, was still prostituting because she had to find uh, money to, to fund her mom's medication and to feed her nieces, to also send her nieces to school. And so that really broke me because I felt like if our organization seeks to end sexual violence, yet those in our organization cannot be protected, then what am I even doing? And so I had a huge, um, yeah, just breaking point of feeling like the, the work that I was doing was insufficient and it didn't have any purpose in this very violent world. And so that um, feeling of failure in my leadership is what put me in the hospital in Zambia um, where I contracted this unknown virus. And now in hindsight, I'm able, I'm able to say that it was secondary PTSD. And um, this virus took me out for months. And recovering physically from the virus was one thing, but then recovering emotionally and spiritually and even in my leadership was another thing. And I argue that that's a lifelong journey. And, and, and I think that also gave me a little bit more empathy for those who experienced primary PTSD. Mine was just secondary. And so if I could you know, understand a semblance of that, um, then it's also allowed me to grow an understanding for those who have experienced PTSD. And so that experience really uh, made me question my role in this world, that if I was called for this huge task of working with survivors and ending sexual violence, providing all of these things that required money and tools and resources and staffing that we didn't have at the time, um, then if I couldn't do those things, then what was I even doing? You know, and and I questioned my leadership. And so that moment was a really important time for me to 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 realize that if I were going to give up as many founders and organizations and you know spiritual leaders, burnout, right, is is such a huge thing. Uh, or a moral failure that I think is also a result of burnout. Um, if if I'm going to pursue this mission, then I have to do it differently because the way that I'm operating now is not sustainable. The way that I'm trying to carry the whole load of um, the survivor's burdens on my soul shoulders is insufficient and impossible also because they're not mine to carry even as much as I feel them, feel it with them. And so that moment was important for me to realize I had to turn to the leadership of the survivors in my community to build this organization together with them and to listen better to their voices and to their vision and to allow that vision to push me and lead me forward. And there was a moment too, where I was just like laying in bed, unable to move, unable to breathe, unable to do anything um, that I remind, was reminded of all of these stories of the girls and especially Mumbanga's and, and how if she could choose to live into another day, experiencing the trauma that she did, if she can choose to go to school, if she can choose to want to use her education to provide a better opportunity for her little sister, then I could also choose to live into another day to try to lead one more time, to transition the way that I had led before and choose a different pathway um, to try again. And I think 
that is the work of justice is to try and to try and to try and to continue trying, even at the face of violence, even at the face of danger, even at the face of loss, to continue trying and build this world that we want to build together. I hear some of your grandfather's perseverance in that. (laughs) Coming back to what am I here for? How, you know, I can't keep doing it this way. How can I do this in a way that's generative and healthy, but also still just as powerful? When you started putting these stories together, um, what did anything surprise you as you put took what you had experienced and what you had learned and what you people you had worked with and loved and still do and you know that their stories continue even as you're you know putting the chapters together but as you put all those together in one place was there anything that that came out to you that was surprising or challenging or unique or that you weren't expecting It was all a challenge. I'll say that. (laughs) I think having to go back into my memory, especially my traumatic memory, to articulate what had happened, especially in my burnout story, that was hard. And actually, I decided to lead with that through my proposal that I submitted because that was the crux of everything for me. And if I couldn't tell that story, then I had no story to tell. Mm. And so I started with that and that it took a year to write the proposal with the, that piece of the story. Mm. Um, Cause it was so hard to flesh out. But once I fleshed that out, it actually gave me more meaning where I could actually connect the dots of what I was seeing and experiencing because I hadn't processed it before. It was, you know, a continual process where I'm like going to therapy and I'm like t- talking about it slowly but in actually writing it in a linear process, in a linear journey and noticing the ways in which um, the girls really supported my journey in that process and what I was, what, what mind shifts were happening for me as well. Putting that to words um, was really important for my own healing journey. And as I wrote the rest of the book and really tried to delve into these stories again, and also like had to talk to the girls again to like, remind me of what had happened or to talk to them about what parts of the story they wanted to keep and what parts they wanted to leave out. Um, That was also a really healing and redemptive experience as well, because as we were talking about what had happened 10, five years ago, we were like laughing about it. Cause it's like, Oh my God. And then that happened and then that happened. And then it's like where they are today just speaks to the, um, the beauty of transformation of what could happen. Um, one of the other girls in the book, she's now getting her master's in Chicago. So like, there's so many just really beautiful um, evolutions that have happened as a result of, of uh, this process. And I think unless we actually stop to recognize how we've evolved and how we've transformed and how we've been able to recognize the beauty, even in hardship, unless we do go through that process, we will forget and we will move life we would move forward in life as if it's just happening to us rather than us being a part of this bigger story and picture of our united and common humanity. That's giving us a better sense of what shared liberation could look like. Mm. Wow. If there is, if you could name a particular gift or, 
uh, impact that you want this book to make on people who read it? What would what would that be? What would you want people to walk away with? I would want people to recognize that those who've experienced the most violent forms of oppression have the potential to become the most powerful liberators in our midst. That could look like your church system, that could look like your organization or your corporation. I want people to really see who is considered, you know, the least of these, as Jesus would say, who is considered the most marginalized, who are the ones that are left on the sidelines, who are the ones that are beaten up on the side of the road, um, and who are the ones also providing care to the ones on the side of the road. It's not always us, the privileged. It's often the neighbors and the friends and the family members of people who are downtrodden. And it's just that we don't see those stories enough. And so that's why I want people to recognize, even in reading the book, it's that it wasn't me who was bringing these girls into a recognition of who they were and helping them achieve their dreams. It was they who were helping each other, who were helping me reach this greater understanding that our liberation is bound to each other. And liberation is here, meaning liberation is here in the places that you least expect. And for me in my context, who I least expected were survivors of sexual violence. They're the ones that have liberated me from so many things, from, from ego, from lack of understanding, from my limited mindset and my um, small capacity to, to love and to feel. Um, that's where I felt liberation. And so I feel, I strongly believe that if, if people who read this can really recognize who it is in their own midst that might be considered the most violently oppressed, what would it look like if we platformed their voice, voices and their vision and their leadership? And what if we turned the tables and allowed them to thrive in the ways that God destined them to thrive, um, no longer oppressing them, but actually amplifying and uplifting them. What would that look like for our world? And I, I truly believe that if we do not listen to the vision of survivors, the vision of the oppressed, the vision of the marginalized, the vision of people of color, then we will perish. And so it's up to all of us to really listen, to learn, to change the way the systems have been operating and to allow survivors of sexual violence to truly lead and to truly be the ones that help us find liberation as well. Mm -hmm. Your stories are a gift. Your story is a gift. The ones that you offer us of these precious girls are a gift in your organization as well. So thank you for taking time to talk about it. And Thanks for diving back into those memories because I think it's valuable and impactful for people to know, you know, what these, how these stories can change and how they can go in a different direction because it does feel a bit overwhelming. So, so thank you for doing yeah. that. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. I appreciate it.
My hope is that this conversation, like all of, and I say this every time, that, but I believe this one is extremely challenging for me. As the father of a daughter, listening to her stories of how women are taken advantage of and then ostracized for something that's completely outside of their choice. I mean, it's the heart of oppression. It's the heart of injustice. And it breaks my heart to know that Nicole actually has a job. <laughs> but I'm glad she does. And I hope that there was a moment in this podcast, wherever you heard it, that you were pressed to ask some serious questions about what you may be invited to do, what role you might be invited to play in helping see liberation come. Nicole Lim is a speaker, an educator, and a consultant on leveraging dignity through the restorative art of storytelling. And you can hear that in her. She's the founder and international director of Freely and Hope, a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to equipping survivors and advocates to lead and ending sexual violence through their rewritten stories. She has a background in photography and filmmaking. Uh, she's been deeply transformed by the powerful, tenacious, and awe-inspiring examples of survivors. She graduated with a degree in film production from Loyola Marymount University, and she's currently pursuing a master's in global leadership from Fuller Theological Seminary. She regularly consults with organizations such as the Salvation Army, International Justice Mission, and Hope International. She's a native of the Bay Area and can also be found buying African fabric on the streets of Nairobi. We talked today about Nicole's book, Liberation is Here, Women Uncovering Hope in a Broken World. You can get that now. And as I said at the beginning, uh, there are links in today's show notes that I would love for you to check out as a way to get involved with what Freely and Hope is doing and get some more resources for the book as well. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, thank you so much. Would you please rate and review the podcast, share it with people you think might want to hear it. If you're streaming via my website, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. If there's anything you'd like to communicate to me or to say or to offer about what can be done on the podcast. We're, we're closing up season three and looking towards next year. Uh, so if you have guests you want to suggest, I would love to hear that. And so may you know that your story, your story of liberation is not disconnected, but it's deeply interwoven with the story of redemption and hope and recovery throughout the world. And so may you share that with those who need liberation themselves. Until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. Mm -hmm.